Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob. And here, James Jordan is going to be in Genesis chapter 48, looking at the sons of Joseph. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 48 in the life of Jacob. Today we'll do Genesis chapter 48, and then we'll have not a whole lot left to do. Let me read, we'll read the passage through, remind ourselves of what it says, and then look at it. There's not a whole lot of details that require a lot of comment. Now after these events, it came to pass that they said to Joseph, Here, your father is taken sick. So he took his two sons with him, Manasseh and Ephraim. And when they told Yaakov, saying, Here, your son Yosef is coming to you, Yisrael gathered his strength and sat up in the bed. And Yaakov said to Yosef, God Shaddai was seen by me in Luz, in the land of Canaan. And he blessed me, and he said to me, Behold, I will make you bear fruit and will make you many and will make you into a host of peoples. And I will give this land to your seed after you as a holding for the ages. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh. Like Reuven and Shimeon, let them be mine. But your begotten sons whom you will beget after them, let them be yours. By their brother's name, let them be called, respecting their inheritance." And as for me, when I came back from that country, Rachel died on me in the land of Canaan, on the way, with still a stretch of land left to come to Ephrat. And there I buried her on the way to Ephrat, which is now Bethlehem. And when Yisrael saw Yosef's sons, he said, Who are these? And Yosef said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Pray, take them over to me, that I may give them blessings. Now Israel's eyes were heavy with age, and he was not able to see, or to see well. He can see a bit. And he brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Yosef, I never expected to see your face again, but here God has let me see your seed as well. Yosef took them from between his knees, and they bowed low their brows to the ground. And Yosef took the two of them, Ephraim from his right hand to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and put it on the head of Ephraim, yet he was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. He crossed his arms, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Yosef and said, The God in whose presence my fathers walked, Abraham and Yitzchak, the God who has tended me ever since I was until this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all ill fortune, May he bless the lads. May my name continue to be called through them in the name of my fathers, Yavraham and Yitzchak. And may they team like fish to become many in the land. Now, when Yosef saw that his father had put his right hand on Ephraim's head, it sat ill in his eyes. It was evil in his eyes. And he grabbed hold of his father's hand to turn it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Yosef said to his father, Not so, father. Indeed, this one is the firstborn. Place your hand on his head. His father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will be a people. He too will be great. 
Yet his younger brother will be greater than he, and his seed will become a full measure of nations. So he blessed him on that day, saying, By you shall Israel give blessings, saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And then Israel said to Yosef, Behold, I am dying. God will be with you, and he will have you return to the land of your fathers. And as for me, I give you one portion over and above your brothers, which I took from the Amorite with my sword and my bow. That's the story. There's obviously one story. It's just one scene. The scene doesn't extend out from either side of this chapter. And it does have these bookends in that we're told at the beginning that Jacob is sick, ill. We know that he's dying. And at the end he says, look, I'm dying, but I give you these things. So there's no particular in-depth literary structure to this passage, but it does have this unifying beginning and end. In terms of the overall structure of the Joseph narrative, way back in your notes somewhere you've got that. This section matches chapter 38 where Judah's sons were switched, and we talked about that at the time, that Judah's sons were switched at birth, and now Joseph's sons are also switched and there are parallels, of course, between Joseph and Judah in many ways, and we'll see a little bit more of that here in this passage as well. This passage also tracks the blessing of Isaac in chapters 27 and 28, and I think that's important. This is something that Wenham points out. Notice that in both cases, the patriarch is blind. Isaac seems to have been blind, period. He could not see anything. Jacob is not completely blind. He's able to see the sons once they come close to him, but his eyes are pretty weak. In both of these stories, we proceed through the same events. Isaac says, who are you, my son, when Jacob comes before him dressed as Esau? And I probably should have made the point then, which we'll have to make today, that that is almost certainly more of a ritual question than a question of curiosity. Certainly in this passage, Jacob knows exactly who Ephraim and Manasseh are. He's seen them many times. He's asking this question in a formal way. In both stories, once the blessing is about to start, there's an embrace and a kiss. Then the blessing is put on the younger son. There's a protest by somebody. Joseph's protest here actually is somewhat similar to Esau's protest. And then the blessing is reaffirmed in both stories. So what we see here is Jacob doing what Isaac wouldn't do. Isaac was supposed to do this, switch the sons. He was supposed to do it willingly. He had to be tricked into doing it, forced into doing it. Jacob, we've seen right along, undoing the mistakes made by his father, getting a blessing for Esau, doing things that his father had failed to do during the time that his father Isaac was in sin. And here's another example of it. Jacob is sort of undoing Isaac's mistake. He's showing us the right way to do it. And so we have really two concepts of blindness here. On the one hand, Isaac's blindness was a sign that he lacked moral insight. Now, he could not discern properly, and that was entirely correct in an understanding of chapter 27. But Jacob's blindness here is set in contrast to Joseph's sight, as we'll see, and is a sign that he's operating by faith and not sight. So this passage gives us a different spin on the matter of blindness. So your eyes are going bad if your heart can still see right. That's what really matters. And Joseph is the one who, even though his eyes are good, he doesn't see correctly. Jacob, although his eyes are almost gone, he does see correctly. 
So there's a different take on the meaning of blindness here theologically, and it indicates faith and not sight. So that's the overall progression of the story here, and now we can read it and just look at some of the details. Verse 1, after these events, it came to pass that they said to Joseph, remember that Joseph is living over in the palace, he's not in the land of Goshen, so a report comes to him, and they didn't have telephones back then, so somebody brought word to him that Jacob, who is pretty old, is pretty sick. And so Joseph comes to visit him. And Joseph is 56 years old when Jacob dies, and Jacob dies right after this. So Joseph is 56, and it's important to understand, of course, that Manasseh and Ephraim are not little boys. Any Sunday school leaflet picture or painting that shows Jacob switching his hands and blessing little boys is completely wrong. They're in their mid-twenties at this point, so they're grown men. Just so that you have the scenario right, so many of these stories we have wrong pictures. Jacob, a young man courting Rachel. Jacob was in his 70s and 80s when he was courting Rachel. You want to try to get the right picture of what's happening here. Well, Joseph is told, and then Jacob is told. But then we read, and this is where this distinction between Jacob and Israel comes to play again, especially in this passage. They told Jacob, saying, your son Joseph is coming. Israel gathered his strength and sat up his bed. Jacob then says to Joseph, God, Shaddai, was seen by me. But then throughout the rest of this passage, it's Israel who acts. Remember, Israel is the name when Jacob is acting as the covenant head of the people. And Jacob is the name when Jacob is talking about himself and what is personally done to him. And obviously there's a a big fuzzy boundary between those two things because they're the same person, and yet there is this different connotation of meaning. So it's as Israel, as the head of the covenant people, that he gathers his strength and sits up in his bed so that as Israel he can give the authoritative blessing as clan chief upon the sons. Then Jacob makes a speech, and it has something of structure. He talks about in the land of Canaan, and then in the land of Egypt, and then in the land of Canaan again. He says in Canaan, El Shaddai had promised him a host of people, and that's in chapter 35. And then in Egypt, he says he's going to adopt Joseph's sons who were born in Egypt. That's in verse 5. And then he goes back and says, Rachel died. When I was in the land of Canaan, the commentators say, oh, well, he starts talking about the old days, and he's got Joseph in front of him, so he thinks about Rachel, and he feels bad about her, and that's what's going on here. The passage is read psychologically. Well, there's a million things that the Bible could tell us about how these people felt at different times, and why this would be here surely has got a reason different from that. And I think that what it does is it sends us back to chapter 35, which I'll briefly summarize here. When they come back into the land, and after the massacre of the men of Shechem, and after they get rid of their foreign gods, then they come to Bethel, which is Luz. In chapter 35, verse 9, it says, God was seen by Jacob again when he came back from the country of Aram, and he gave him his blessing. God said to him, Jacob is your name, but Jacob not any longer, for your name is Israel. And he calls his name Israel. And God said further to him, I am El Shaddai. So this reference, El Shaddai, appeared to me, refers back to this. 
Bear fruit and be many nations. Yes, a host of nations will come from you, and kings will come out from your loins. And then he goes on to tell him he's going to give him the land, and Jacob sets up a pillar. And then immediately in verse 16, they departed from Bethel, but when there was still a stretch of land to come to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she gives birth to Benjamin, son of the right hand, the future king, which is what right hand has to do with. Jesus sits at God's right hand. That's what it means to be a king. And he buries her along the way to Ephrath, which is now Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Now that we have read more, we can see a little bit more in depth of what God is doing by causing these names to be the way they are. And we'll look at that now. My point in going back to that is that by adopting these two sons in a whole context where God had promised to him a multitude of nations and kings, he's implying, and we'll see it's pretty direct, that Ephraim will be a king. And this kingship passage, kingship theme has been all the way through this by implication, and now we'll see it. In verses 3 and 4, Jacob speaks, and he says, Al Shaddai appeared to me. So it's me, Jacob, not Israel, but specifically him that the promises were made to, and now as Israel, he will carry out the promises. El Shaddai, remember, is the God who is almighty and who makes promises. Yahweh is the God who keeps the promises that he made before by El Shaddai. So in Genesis, this name, the Omnipotent One, has particular association always with promises of the future. You can trust God because he's all-powerful, and when he promises something in the future, he can bring it to pass. He's not weak. He's not some limited God. He's not Zeus. Nobody's going to interfere with his plans. And as I point out here, the promise was for nations and kings, and using this introduction and following it up with a statement about Rachel calls our attention back to that passage and implies... It's behind the scenes here, but it implies that Joseph's sons will also be kings, which is true. We've had three king pictures in this narrative. Joseph is like a king. Everybody bows down to him. He's in charge of everything. He's at Pharaoh's right hand. Before that, he was at Jacob's right hand. Benjamin is the promised king, son of the right hand. And then Judah, by offering to die for Benjamin, shows what kingship is like, and Judah, we're going to be told, is going to be the king. In the very next chapter, the scepter will not depart from Judah until far in the future. And as always, it's dispute about exactly what the phrasing there means, but one thing's for sure, it says Judah will be a king. So we've got three king pictures here, and Joseph is one of them. Ephraim is Joseph's son, and Ephraim is a king. Jeroboam was from Ephraim. The whole northern kingdom of Israel is called Ephraim. And those kings in northern Israel mostly came from the tribe of Ephraim. So calling attention to this kingly promise, kingly nation promise, at the time Ephraim is blessed is important. And we'll see that it continues through here. The, the promises that are made here are not fulfilled until after Solomon. These are very much predictive prophecy promises that you've got about 650 years into the future before they come to pass. It's all here by implication, but knowing the rest of the Bible enables us to go back and see what's revealed here in compact form. So, verse 5, he says, 
your two sons who were born in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt. See, he's talked about being in the land of Canaan. Now he shifts to Egypt. They are mine. And now he reverses their names for the first time. Up in verse 1, Joseph took his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And that's the birth order. Manasseh is the oldest. But then Jacob says, they are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh. Like Reuben and Simeon, let them be mine. Well, that means Ephraim, who was second born, is like Reuben, who was first born. And Manasseh, who was second born, is going to be like Simeon, who was first born. So he's already switching their position, and that's, of course, a hint of what's going to happen. But notice what it does. Reuben is first born. Reuben should be the king. He's the oldest. Why isn't he the king? Because he sinned, and so he set aside. We'll get that in the next chapter. Jacob will set him aside. Well, then it would pass to Simeon or Levi, but Simeon sins, and so he's passed by. And Levi sins, so he's passed by. So who does the kingship pass to? It passes to Judah. Judah is the next in line. So Judah would be the king. And Benjamin is going to be a king, and Judah is going to be a king. That's already been set up. Now he says Ephraim is like Reuben. But we cancel out Reuben and replace him with Judah, so Ephraim is like Judah. Again, the logic of the statement is Ephraim will be like Judah. Let's just decode that, see? I hope this is clear. Ephraim and Manasseh are like Reuben and Simeon. Ephraim is like Reuben, but we cancel out Reuben. The next in line is Simeon. We cancel him out. The next in line is Levi. We cancel him out. The next in line is Judah. He's not canceled out. Ephraim is like Judah. Judah is a king. Ephraim is a king. And what are the names of the two kingdoms of Israel after Solomon? Ephraim and Judah. The northern kingdom is called Ephraim. The southern kingdom is called Judah. So everything here is anticipating far future events. He's setting up. Of course, Joseph has no way of knowing this. They had no way of knowing that that was what was hinted at here. But we can look back at it and see that it is. That that is what Jacob is inspired to say here and to record for the future. Jim, is it true also that sometimes it seems like after the dividing of the kingdom that the word Israel? Yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah, that is also implied in what's said here later on. We'll come to that. So, good point. Because it is right here in the passage, as I'll show you in just a sec. Then we have this odd statement in verse 6, Your begotten sons whom you will beget after them, let them be yours. In other words, I won't adopt all your other sons, just these two. And by their brothers' names, let them be called, respecting their inheritance. So, Joseph has six more sons. Joe, Bob, Billy, Bob, Fred, and all his other sons. And they are just distributed under Ephraim and Manasseh. They're considered to be part of the clan of Ephraim or Manasseh. He can distribute them. Now, the fact of the matter is the Bible never says anything about any other sons of Joseph. If he had other sons, we're never told it. The genealogies of Ephraim and Manasseh don't say all that much about who their first order descendants were. So it's unclear as to whether Joseph actually had any other sons. It would seem to be that he does, or exactly how they fit in, but that's where they would have fit they would have been given either to one or the other of these older sons as part of their community, as part of their tribe. 
And then we have this statement here that we can do a little bit more with than we did before. He says, when I came back from that country, Rachel died on me in the land of Canaan. On the way was still a stretch of land left to come to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath. It's now Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem means house of bread. And now that we've read this whole Joseph story, which is all about bread, and the fact that Joseph is the Lord of bread, and that Goshen is a house of bread, and that's why they've come down to Egypt to get bread, you get a sort of an additional connotation to Rachel dying before they get to the place of bread. She dies before they get to the house of bread, and in a larger way, she dies before Israel moves down into Egypt, which is the place of bread. Now, Bethlehem is like Egypt. They're both places of bread. Of course, we know that in a larger context, Jacob is also going to die before he comes back to Bethlehem. He's not going to go back to Canaan, to the house of bread, but he's asked to be taken back. So this whole idea of going forward into the place of bread is kind of a large idea here. They've all made this trek down into Egypt to get bread. But eventually they want to get back into Canaan, which is the real place of bread. Egypt is only temporary. Rachel dies before she gets there, and so will Jacob, and so will Joseph. They'll all die before they get to Bethlehem, but their bodies will be taken back up into the land of Canaan. So I think that part of the reason this is all repeated here and rehashed is to give us some of these additional thoughts that we're moving toward an ultimate place of bread. Egypt is not the final place of bread. Bethlehem is And, of course, eventually, as the Bible says more and more about Bethlehem, you can trace Bethlehem in the last, well, the last part of Judges and then in the book of Ruth and then with David and then, of course, with Jesus, the one who gives bread, and he gives us bread today in the Lord's table. This is all on the way to that. So this is kind of a psychological theme here. They don't have bread, they're dying, but they're going toward it and they'll get there eventually. Well, now we come to some formalities here. Israel saw Joseph's sons. We can say he sees these two shadowy figures here next to Joseph, and he says, who are these? And it's interesting how some commentators just worry about that, and, of course, liberals say this is evidence of a different source coming in here because he should know who they are, but he doesn't know who they are, and blah, blah, blah. And some of the conservative commentators say, well, maybe he just hadn't seen them in a long time, so he had to ask who they were. But this is just formal language. It's like at a baptism when parents bring their children forward and you say, who brings this child to be baptized? Well, I know full well who they are. It's Bob and Nan Smith. I know them. They brought their baby to be baptized. And then you say, by what name is this child to be called before you baptize them? Well, I know that they're going to call their baby John. Everybody's known about that in the church for a week and a half. But there are these formal rituals, and I guess maybe not all churches do that, but certainly that's customary, and this is a ritual culture. He is asking simply a formal question to initiate a ritual act of passing a blessing. And the same thing happened, of course, when Isaac asked Jacob, Who are you, my son? He wasn't sure exactly who Jacob was, so there was genuine curiosity on that occasion. You smell like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. Who are you? But there's also the formality aspect. We're going to do the blessing. Let's get the names out here in an official way. 
and do this. And then we have this formal transfer that takes place in verses 10 to 12. And we're told Israel's eyes were heavy with age. He was not able to see, although we're going to see in a second, that he says, I can see them. So he wasn't able to see well. And Joseph brings them close, and he kisses them and embraces them. Well, kissing is a form of eating, and it means that you are one with the person that you kiss. It's like an embrace. And so while certainly they had fallen on each other's necks and kissed each other before, and they'd hugged before, in this context... It means that Israel is taking them into himself. They're going to belong to him now. This is a ritual act that is transferring them to him. And we'll see this right here in verse 12. Joseph took them from between his knees, and they bowed low their brows to the ground. Now, as we've said, these boys were not four years old and six years old. They weren't sitting on Joseph's knees. Nor were they probably standing between his knees. That'd be pretty hard. If I'm sitting here uh, and have two grown men standing between my knees would be rather difficult. This is just an expression. Children are born between the knees of women and they're conceived between the knees of men. And so what this is saying is that the child is being transferred from being Joseph's offspring, from having come forth between his knees, to being Israel's offspring. That's what the language here means that they are moving from one knees to the other knees. Remember that adoption has to do with being on the knees. I think it's in Ruth where Obed is placed on Naomi's knees, even though he's born by Ruth, so that he becomes Naomi's child. And that's what Hagar was supposed to do with Ishmael when he was born. He was supposed to be born from between her knees, but then put on the knees of Sarah, so that he would officially be Sarah's child. And, of course, that didn't happen. But that was what was supposed to happen. Well, the same thing is here. These sons are positioned as coming from the loins of Joseph, from between his knees. And now they're moved over to where they are adopted by Jacob. And now they come from his loins, from between his knees. That's what the language here means. Again, it's formal language describing adoption. We're not supposed to read it as if somehow or other two grown men were standing in between Joseph's knees and they moved over. Maybe they did something like this, but I doubt it. It seems physically difficult to imagine. And as I said, they aren't little boys, so it can't be that. Then we come to the blessing itself in verses 13 to 16 where I say a crossed blessing, and let's look at it. Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim with his right hand to Israel's left, Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right. In other words, since his father doesn't see well, he guides the sons to the right place so that Israel will put his hands on them in the right way. But as you know, Israel stretched out his right hand and put it on the head of Ephraim, his left hand on the head of Manasseh. He crosses his hands. And then in verse 15, it says he blessed Joseph. We want to make sure we take note of that. It doesn't say he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. It doesn't say he blessed Ephraim saying X, and then he blessed Manasseh saying Y. He blessed Joseph. And in Joseph, both sons are blessed. They're both blessed equally, or they both receive the same blessing. And I think we need again to think back to the earlier story of 
blind Isaac, blessing Jacob, because Rebekah had mixed up Esau and Jacob together when she sent Jacob in. Jacob went into Isaac with food that was Jacob's food, but spiced with Esau's spices. He went in with his own body, but with Esau's clothes. The food was made from two kids of the goats. And what Rebekah wanted was for both of her sons to be blessed, not just one of them, and they both were. Esau receives all these blessings later on that we studied before. And it's even possible that he was saved eventually because of the way he embraces Jacob and wants to be with Jacob, which is what he was told he needed to do if he wanted to be saved. So that's mixing together of the two sons to receive the same basic blessing is what Rebecca does. And here, both sons receive blessing, even though the kingly blessing is given to Ephraim. The right hand is crossed over and put on Ephraim, and that is exactly what's going to happen. Manasseh doesn't become a kingly tribe. Ephraim does become a kingly tribe. And so it's all very prophetic. He blesses Joseph. And through Joseph, both sons. And he describes God in three ways. First of all, he says, The God of Abraham and Isaac, be with them. And the God who has taken care of me ever since I was born, be with them. And then in verse 16, he says, The angel, messenger or angel, and by that we understand to be the angel of Jehovah, the angel of Yahweh, who redeemed me, or who stood as a goel, which means redeemer and avenger. It's the same thing. The avenger of blood and the redeemer of the kin is the same word in Hebrew. It's not just the same word. It's the same person. We break it out in English into either redeemer or avenger, depending on the context. But in Hebrew, it's the same thing. Redeemer, avenger. And so I hope you can see that in the text. Your text isn't going to say it. It's going to say who delivered me or redeemed me from all evil. But it could just as easily mean who avenged me in the face of all evil, and it's both. So he says, may the one who is the close kinsman protector be with them. That God has not only been the supreme God, but God has traveled with him as the close kinsman protector who redeems and avenges him from all evil. And may that blessing come upon them. And then he says, and this is where Point Harold made earlier comes into play, May my name continue to be called through them, as well as the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Well, Israel is the name, and Israel comes to be specifically associated with Ephraim. We don't talk about the kingdom of Judah as Israel. Sometimes the Bible does, but usually the southern kingdom is called Judah. But the northern kingdom is called Ephraim, and it's also called Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And after Solomon's day, when you say kingdom of Israel, you mean the northern tribes which were governed by Ephraim. And so they're called either Ephraim or Israel. So this, again, is all implied here. There's no way they could have known how this was going to come to pass, but the language implies it. It implies these things that we can see taking place later on in history. That is going well down into the future. Now we have this strange mixed metaphor here. Of course, in English, mixed metaphors are not allowed, but the Bible is full of them. There's nothing wrong with them. He says, may they be like fish in the land. Well, a couple of times earlier, the multiplication of the people has been said to be like the sand of the sea. Your descendants will be like the sand of the sea. So maybe 
this ocean imagery is just being picked up again here, only the word fish is used. If your Bible doesn't say fish, it should. If it just says, may they multiply in the land at the end of verse 16, the actual word underneath that is fish, and it's not the usual word for multiply at all. The word is dog. When we get the word dogon, or dagon, the god of the Philistines, was fish god, because it's the word dog. And this says, may they fish on out in the midst of the land. So why? I don't know why, but I think maybe there's a hint. Northern Israel, Ephraim, separated from the temple in Jerusalem under the bad kings, becomes kind of like a semi-Gentile nation. And maybe multiplying like fish is more appropriate for Manasseh and Ephraim than it would be for Judah as an image. I don't know. It's the first time fish have been mentioned as a symbol for people in the Bible, and certainly a very rare use of fish in connection with the covenant people. Fish and sea is always associated with the Gentiles. So maybe there is some hint of the nature of the northern kingdom as well, that it would be not as closely tied to the covenant priestly task, but would be somewhat in between being Gentile and priestly, which is true. It's the kingdom of Judah that continues to maintain the high priest and the Davidic king, and the northern kingdom becomes much more like a regular nation and much less like a theocracy because they don't have the temple in their midst and they don't have the Davidic kings. So maybe there's a hint of that by the use of the word fish here. Well, Joseph doesn't like what he sees. The language is softened up just a little bit here in this translation. It sat ill in his eyes and he laid hold on his father's hand. Really, it says he saw that it was evil in his eyes. But here is an interesting business of sight comes up again, you see. Joseph sees with his eyes, and it sits ill in his eyes. It's evil in his eyes. He's got eyes. He can see. His father can't see very well. But what we're being told here is that there is a sight that is better than physical sight. Israel is acting by insight, not physical sight. He acts by faith and not by sight. Joseph is operating by sight, by common sense, by the way things are supposed to be. He doesn't have the inside track on prophecy at this point. So he objects. He grasps his father's hand. It implies force. He doesn't just say, Dad, don't do this. Just touch him. He grabs hold of his hand to pull it over and put it on the other son. This reminds us back again, after the blessing was given by Isaac in chapter 27, Esau came back and said, please, reverse things. Don't do it this way. Change it back. And Isaac said, well, I can't do that. It's too late. And I know what I've done. I realize now what I've done. I'm not going to undo it. Joseph is a little bit like Esau here. Again, because of the parallels in the passage, he objects and he wants to undo what his father's done. I mean, his father's already crossed his hands and given this blessing. And he wants him to undo it. Change it back. Take it back and do it again. That's what Esau wanted, but Jacob's not going to do that. So he objects, and this objection here is part of the story. Joseph is this point. Joseph has been the one who has been the prophet right along, and who has seen more than Jacob saw. He had the dreams and everything. But now at the end, it's Jacob who sees more than Joseph sees. Joseph doesn't see the far future. 
And Jacob does, and Jacob knows what to do. And so Jacob reiterates these promises, and he adds a little bit to it, which again comes to pass. Verses 19 and 20. His father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. I know knowledge as opposed to sight. You see, but I know. That's the way this passage is set up. Manasseh will be a people, and he too will be great, which means there will be a lot of people. But his younger brother, Ephraim, will be greater than he, and his seed will become a full measure of nations. Lots of nations. It's an obscure phrase, and the commentators wrestle with precisely what it might mean. Well, we don't have to get real precise here to understand what the prophecy is and how it comes to pass. And so he blessed them on that day, saying, By you shall Israel give blessings, saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And in that way he made Ephraim go before Manasseh. Well, two things are said here. The contrast is given out a bit. He says, Manasseh will be a nation. He too will be a people and he will be great. They will be a nation and they will be great, a people. Well, great means lots of people. Well, if you look at the genealogies and numbers, you'll see Manasseh had a lot more people than any of the other tribes did. The genealogies show that. Manasseh has this large number of people. And, in fact, when they come into the promised land, they occupy both sides of the Jordan. And Manasseh actually becomes two half-tribes. One half is called Machir, M-A-C-H-I-R. You read about that in the Old Testament. That's part of the tribe of Manasseh. Half of the tribe of Manasseh, along with Reuben and Gad, dwelt on the far side of the Jordan, the Transjordan. And the rest of Manasseh was on the near side of the Jordan, Cisjordan, as it's called. Now, that's a lot of people, and they spread out and occupied a lot of territory. So, more than any of the other tribes. So that's the great blessing. And then he says, Ephraim will be even greater because there will be lots of nations included in him. And, of course, that is what happens with the northern kingdom. You have the northern tribes, all of them, about ten of them, and they're all part of Ephraim. Of course, they continue to be separate, but they are called Ephraim. So Ephraim, in time, becomes a bunch of nations. Again, the language here is vague, but if you know the future, which we do now, we've got the rest of the Bible to fill it in, we can see what's being hinted at here, what's being said. What's obscure here is made clear later on. And he said, these special blessings, none of the other tribes have these blessings. None of the other tribes are going to be as big as Manasseh. None of the other tribes will be so big that they get to divide in two and become two tribes like Manasseh. None of the other tribes, except Judah, will become the name for a bunch of tribes. And so because of that, these tribes receive greater blessings than any of the rest, measured this way, measured in terms of population and of politics These two tribes receive the greatest blessings. And so people will bless by them and say, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. They won't say, May God make you like Zebulun. That would be nice. But hey, if you're going to bless somebody, say, like Manasseh, where you have lots of people, and not just a lot of people, but lots and lots. They don't say, May God make you be like Issachar, but hey, may God make you be like Ephraim, a tribe that is in charge of all the rest and is a leader of all the rest of the tribes in the north. He says, verses 21 and 22, this is the last statement here that Jacob makes on this occasion. Later on in the day or a couple of days later, he has this blessing in chapter 49. 
Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you, and he will return you to the land of your fathers. That would be in context implying the whole tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and along with them everybody else returning. But it's also true that specifically Joseph does go back to the land of promise in his sarcophagus that is kept there, and we'll look at that at the end of Genesis when we get to it. And then he says, I give you one portion over and above your brothers, which is true. When the land is divided, Joseph will receive two portions, one for Ephraim and one for Manasseh. All the other sons will receive one portion. So the double portion blessing is given to Joseph. And then he says, this territory that I took away from the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. (laughs) We don't know anything about that. Apparently, Jacob had had occasions to fight some wars over the years that were not told about and had actually taken some property and dominated some territory. And we don't know when this was or how it happened. We do know from First Chronicles that after the people lived in the land of Goshen and had their headquarters there, they did continue to go up into the Promised Land and fight battles and occupy parts of it. Maybe I should take us into Chronicles and look at that. I'll try to remember to do that just to show you some of these battles and wars that were fought during this time up in the land of Canaan as they continued to dominate it after the years of famine were over. But that's the bottom line, and that's what's happening here. Long-term prophecies into the future, and we'll look at chapter 49, more such things in connection with the other tribes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.